Well, it is that time again, everyone, for another episode of Radical Humanity. My name is Ben Hoover, and this is my little side gig where I just process my thoughts out loud, basically. It's a, it's a culmination of my own personal experiences and making connections from, from past experiences, present experiences, conversations with friends, linking that with things I read, uh, experiences I have with clients, um, and uh, my own personal therapy, and uh, um, you know philosophy, theology, things like that. So it's just me kind of uh, unearthing some of the things I find interesting and seeking out and, and unraveling for myself. Um, and, uh, and so that's my side gig and my main gig, as I kind of hinted at there, uh, is I uh, am a marriage and family therapist. So, um, so and, and all of that is influential in my life. It, it bleeds into everything. Uh, so now let's give some preamble, shall we? Um, so this episode, actually, I scrapped. Um, I had recorded it, and this is a re-recording. And actually, I, I'm re-recording it because I the this piece that I'm in which I'm talking from is uh, I have rewritten it, and because something uh, in the original piece something just felt missing when I was reading it. it didn't it didn't it lacked clarity and it lacked cohesion and flow of thought. And, um, and so I, I, I took, I was, I took a whole day, uh, and, and rewrote it. And the, uh, and, and so for me, this, this piece and all the other episodes I have that are, uh, within the series that I'm recording, um, this is my, my, my magnum opus. This is what I would call my masterpiece in a way. Um, I could probably retire after this and rest soundly on a beach somewhere. Um, the the first the first recording of this episode was actually uh, I think like an hour and a half. Uh, yeah, it was an hour and a half. So that was that was like watching a movie, just not as entertaining. Um, so I'm hoping that I don't uh, I don't go that long into this episode. If I do, then um, well, you're just you're going to have to suffer through it or enjoy it or piecemeal it or listen to it in, in, uh, in bits here and there. So, um, as I mentioned, this, this series is an eight-part series, and this is the first episode. And, uh, and so what this series is on is something called the Beatitudes. And if you're unfamiliar with the Beatitudes, if that doesn't ring a bell, the Beatitudes is in... Uh, is this these eight blessing statements that are in the ancient writings, or some people call the Bible, and uh, it's a part of this sort of what I like to call the State of the Union address that Jesus gives, um, a, a speech that clarifies uh, the. the it, brings illumination on what true humanity is, what it's meant to be, the way of living and engaging in life and with others. And so if that turns you off at the sound that this is 
this is this is from the scriptures, and uh, and it has that religious bent to it. Bear with me because actually, um, what I'm going to uh, uh, convey through this series is that this is this is actually about uh, a conversion away from religion. In fact, that's what I think Jesus was actually implying uh, and, and and rupturing uh, in his in his little time on earth. And so, uh, and so why I'm so fascinated by this, by these blessing statements has to do with a personal experience I had, um, God, I mean like five, six years ago when I was in school, I was going through grad school and I was in a seminary going for my marriage and family therapist degree. And it was one of my last classes and this professor brought up the Beatitudes and he had mentioned, I never heard this before, but he had mentioned that the Beatitudes was this, was, I don't know if he used the term journey, but um, I'll use it. But he would basically, uh, um, his opinion was that this was this journey of emptying and, and, and losing and being emptied and then experiencing this emptiness and then this hunger and then being filled. And that, you know, my background being in the church and whatnot, like that had never been taught before. I never read anything like that. Like that just stayed with me. I don't know if you've ever had those experiences that in the, the onslaught, the ambush of information we have every day, something stands out, something sticks. It, it, it doesn't go away. It loiters in your mind. Uh, that's something to pay attention to because that, that there's, there's, per, there's meaning in that as to why it sticks and stays. And this uh, was that for me. It stayed with me once he said that. And I just, I mean, it was one of those moments where it was just this, the, this awakening. This, oh my God, really? Wow, I'd never seen that before and it made sense. But then fast forward to last March, uh, almost a year ago, I... Uh, I had well prior to that I'd been getting doing a lot of writing and recording podcasts and whatnot and uh, and it was always kind of in my head that eventually I want to write on the Beatitudes. Now at this time I stopped publishing my recordings and, and writings on my website because it 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 got to a point where I felt so tormented because I kept writing for other people. I was writing with with uh, always the audience's reaction in mind. And I lost myself and I lost my enjoyment. And so I stopped and I went to this cabin and I went to this cabin. I got away back in March, went by myself. It was a solo retreat and I brought my snowshoes and went snowshoeing and, and I, and I had my music and I danced and I had dreams. And I, I mean, just these incredible experiences, really challenging experiences too. Um, but one of the one of the experiences I had was writing for myself, and I started to write on the Beatitudes, and it was this incredible experience where I just, I just unraveled. It wasn't, it wasn't about trying to have the answer or the right answer or being correct. It was just through my own, kind of filtered through my own experience, I began uh, uh, exploring what these individual statements, these, these one-liners were. Um, and, and, and what they meant to me. And that was such a, 
um, that was such a such a change for me when it came to writing that it was no longer about other people and giving a message to them. It was about finding the message for myself, which has now you know been a, a change for me in these present writings and and podcast episodes. So I wrote through most of those, um, a good portion of them was at the cabin and then I finished them probably like a week or so later. Oh, actually, except for one, but, but they were still in a way kind of unfinished. And so I, I stopped and I, I put those to the side and then about a couple months ago, back in, well, back in December, it, it this stirring arose in me then and the beatitudes came back into my mind i thought i want to finish those and i want to i want to do a, a podcast episode to each piece and so i embarked in it and it's been this incredible intimate experience where some of the uh um some of the writings i either uh, uh, finished, I added more to it, I altered, or I just scrapped it completely. And some I didn't even look at. I just thought, I'm going to write from my experience today because so much so much change had taken place over the year, going through this experience with my dad having cancer, going through a breakup, um, and, um, and, 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 and just my personal therapeutic experiences and, and everything and all the little, all the details that uh, assembled that time. And so I thought, you know, so I wrote kind of from this, from this fresh place and, and then I would read through some of them and I thought, nah, it doesn't work for me anymore. And I would, and so I rewrite them from, from scratch. And I had in the midst of this, I, I had these incredible experiences like dance party, like a, like my own solo dance parties. I put in music, I cried. I, I, I was just so overwhelmed with gratefulness, um, that I, I, I could, I don't know, I could, I could begin to understand that this was a journey, that this writing was a journey, but it wasn't just something I was reading. It was something that it was my own experiences imbued in the writing and the understanding of these, these eight statements. And so for me, it was this writing exemplified this, this whole personal experience of change and self-discovery. And I found that these, these eight statements, blessing statements, marked my own journey. It was a reassurance, a validation, like, oh, this, this, is what this, this is what this looks like to go through this. This is what this means. Okay. And it, was a, it became a source of encouragement. And so for me, the, the Beatitudes is this odyssey of change, Right. And, um, and I see that now as it's this, this foundation, this blueprint of growth for myself. And I wanted to share that with people in the hopes that maybe that encourages you. Maybe that, maybe you, you know, you'll, you'll, this will piss you off. Maybe because some of it's controversial and maybe, maybe it will rattle the cage in you. Maybe it will confirm something in you. Either way, I hope, I hope that it has impact, whatever that may be. So the Beatitudes, as I said, is this, uh, what I call this conversion process, right? And so it's not, when I say conversion, it's not in the religious sense. It's not where you switch over to another belief structure and system, right? These, these assumptions and presumptions of mankind and humanity and, and you know, and life and whatnot. It's, it's rather, I argue that it's, it's something entirely different, which I'll go into. So, on that note, this one 
is the first blessing statement. And it's called, well, actually I phrased it as blessed are those who have found meaninglessness. And the actual version is blessed are those uh, who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Now, I'm pretty sure most of us would be on the same page in understanding that life is mysterious. It's a big, fat mystery. It makes little sense. We end up in this world with very little answers. And, and, and if we look back, revisit you know, human history, the trajectory of human existence, you know, it's, it's, it's marked by the ugly and the beauty. And by the ugly, there's violence and wars and abuse and racism and torture and destruction and sexism and so on and so forth. But, but it's also imbued with beauty, relational healing, compassion, repair, care, incredible growth, right? Passions, people discovering their passions, celebrating each other, the incredible endeavors, unfathomable triumphs, exploration, sexual intimacy, the natural world, marveling over children and their genuineness, their curiosity, and so on, right? And then a part of this life, there's there's so many different belief systems, religious traditions, ideologies, philosophies, self-help treatments, psychological techniques, right? They all take up residence in attempts of trying to figure out life, generate answers, guide us through this journey, right? And then there's also a spectrum of positions, kind of fighting for meaning and sacredness, you know, over, over this life, the sacredness of life, trying to determine whether this means something or not, all right? And all these positions have you know, developed and arranged their own understanding and are often in conflict with each other. There's those that say that this life matters only in the sense that it you know, brings us into the next life. It secures us for, for, for the future, for that, the afterlife. Right? And so invest in now so, you know, so we can secure our place in the afterlife. And then there's those on the other side of the camp that say, no, none of this matters. It doesn't matter. None of it does. We're all going to die. We're going to cease. There's no divine presence. Nothing. All right? Nothing interacting life beyond us. And, and, you know, just extract what you can. All right? Or they might take the approach. Um, sorry, I thought I heard something. Um, it might take the approach of, yeah, you know, this life is entirely meaningful. Live for now. All right? Or there's some that, that say, no, it doesn't matter. Extract all you can. You know, everything's going to cease. And it, you know, there's so many different belief systems kind of within that and positions. But here's the thing, like, no matter what we believe, no matter how solid we think we are, underneath the surface are these doubts and these this questioning. And it's impossible to escape. Right? It's impossible to escape that really we're living this illusion, that we we really know it all. We it makes sense. And that there's this singular right way of comprehending existence. And a lot of religions and not just religions, but um, but particularly religious communities tend to operate out of this framework, you know, promoting that they know the way, enticing people, alluring people to 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 uh, um, agree with with those answers, right, to life's problems. They they know the way, the answers. But here's the thing: despite 
these loud and ubiquitous voices that, that permeate life and human existence, these messages that promote certainty and knowing, I believe, you know, from, from what a device range, range of pulpits, I believe are smoke screens to cushion us from existential crisis. But it's the very thing that, that, that an existential crisis that actually I think we need, this kind of like meta-narrative convulsion and erosion. It's necessary for something more to arise, something more profound, enriching, life-giving, vibrant, to come forth. And so something in me, regardless, deep within, even though I can't quite define it, even though it might be elusive to complete understanding, is that says that somehow this life and how I live it is inextricably significant. How I engage, how I embrace it matters. It means something. There's just the sense. And I think deep in our souls is this nudge towards something greater and beyond what we've created, these self-created industries that... that that are generated out of this, this need to be f- fulfilled and satisfied completely, but really end up delivering us back into emptiness and dissatisfaction. And so that's why like, I'm so drawn to the Beatitudes, which, again, is this small little section in scriptures. I mean, it's, it's tiny. It's eight statements. But here it's Jesus illuminating this this interesting and foreign list of actions and states. And, it, and he starts it off with these blessing statements that somehow someone's blessed if they go through the experience, these experiences. And that's what's so weird, because Jesus was weird. And, and so contradictory, such a paradox in life. He's such an anomaly. And so, and so that's what came out of him. And, and these statements are so odd and contradictory. Like, someone's blessed if they go through despair and loss and grief and meaninglessness and vulnerability and hunger and, right, and, and, and rage and anger. Like, somehow someone's blessed. They're rich. They're in the kingdom. They, I mean, What? But here's the thing is, what if Jesus is illuminating something profound? And, and yet, it's often covered up by our highly controlled, mitigated lifestyles, you know, our regulated, cushioned lifestyles. What if this whole message is communicating that struggle is the way? That dissatisfaction and discontentment and disappointment and an embrace of that leads us to something beyond. And could it mean that if we go through these experiences, that there's signals that we're on the right path? It's a path that leads to freedom, to peace, to contentment, and aliveness within. A path that, that we end up being liberated from, from mitigating the unknown, trying to demystify the mystery, and, and liberated from, from seeking satisfaction through external means. And I need these objects to feel okay and at peace within. Like, what if that's what he's communicating? What if that's the path? And it, I know it seems so backwards the way we construct our lives, but maybe those who un- go through this unraveling and loss and embrace of this painful collapse, that really they found the prerequisites to a life that's lived richly, not a life that's uh, that's accumulating riches, but one that's that's 
that lives from within and enjoys life and embraces it, enjoys it richly. Now, here's the thing, and this is going to go, this is not mainstream, and this is going to go against the masses, but the thing is, is here I believe that Jesus is highlighting that this is a path for everyone. It's not, and this happens with people across various spectrums and belief systems, this unraveling, this painful collapse. It's not, it's, it's, this isn't some exclusive, you have to be in the club and accept me in order to be saved insurance plan. That's not what this path is. This path is universal. And, I, and for me, I think that Jesus' words and presence and what he shared and brought to the earth has been misinterpreted to mean that he's the Savior that we're to devote ourselves to, accept in our hearts and worship in order to be free from the pains of this life. And that to come, to secure to secure our house, heavenly house. And but this I don't think is what this his message indicates if we pay if we pay closer attention. In fact, I think Jesus actually exposes the impotency of the systems of safety and certainty we create, and that includes religion. A religion that we've we've centered, made him the, the centering figure around. And I know. I know that's controversial. I know that might upset. But follow me on this. And so, here's the thing. So the ancient scriptures, when they when they're end up being so heavily read in a literal manner, it misses, it misses these messages, these rich meanings that are buried in the stories and the words throughout the writings. And I want to show, convey that in these in these series of writings, the Beatitudes, it's not an actual list, but as I said before, it's a, they're markers of an unfolding journey towards becoming authentically human in this life, to just being, existing, living. It's it is a tumultuous path of genuine living. Because it's one that frees. It's a struggle, a vicious, a a a. Sometimes a harsh struggle that frees us from the tyranny of the unending search for satisfaction and certainty. But as I said before, it's actually an embrace of dissatisfaction and uncertainty that leads us into life. There was a, there was a video, and I'll probably do more of these, where I said how not to be grateful. Because we force ourselves to be grateful. We say we have everything in this life and I should be grateful, but, but we feel, it, we, it, we can't argue. We can't refute that there's this experience of dissatisfaction and discontentment, and yet we force ourselves to try to be grateful when I, those very feelings that stir in us are trying to teach us something. And that's what I mean is that this embrace of dissatisfaction and that I don't know, I don't have the answers, is actually the entryway, the path to life. And it's a kind of life then that, that when we embrace it from that way, it embraces then the whole spectrum of existence and joy and deep connection. We can dance with life in, the, in its rhythm and the way it exists and be in this flow. So the Beatitude journey is a conversion process. It's universal. It's free of exclusivity. I cannot say that word. And... It's free of sales pitches that persuade people to be on the same team, the religious team, and 
you know, and carry the same uniform belief system. But it's a liberation process of finding oneself. Free from dependency on the outer world, from the systems we create for protection to mitigate the uncertainties of life. Instead, it's one that moves us. It's a movement that engages us into to, to live in the mysterious existence that's connected and unguarded. So then Jesus says, starts out with this statement where he says, now follow me. This might be hard to follow. It took me a while to, to really piece this out. And that's why I got nervous with this episode because I'm like, oh my God, I hope, I really hope that this makes sense to me. So Jesus starts out with a statement and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this is kind of a head scratcher line, right? He's saying that those who are rich, blessed in other words, in this life are those who are poor in their spirit and those who have a sense of poverty in the depths of their soul are now living in the kingdom. Meaning now, not something distant and remote in the celestial regions in the afterlife. No, but that there's that someone has entered into heaven now, present. Now, this makes a lot of sense, right? So far, I mean, that that makes so yeah. That that just we can walk away with that mystery solved. But here's the thing: from that statement, for me, so many questions arise. The statement at first is so mysterious, but then there's these questions that come up in me that really are the threads to unravel this riddle. Now, when we when we camp out in this word this this word poor, you know, we we imagine an external poverty, right? Someone that is very little or nothing at all, materialistically speaking. The one who's in this impoverished state, they live um, emaciated. You know, down to the bare bones in life. They're uh, kind of they're just scraping by. They're starving, isolated, stranded, lacking resource. Their living situation is nowhere close to ideal. They suffer great discomfort. Right? They possess just bottom-of-the-barrel materials just to get by. And some, to make ends meet, they may not even have at home, but those who make ends meet, you know, they're, they're, that are so poor, they, they wander the streets. Right? Where they stand holding cardboard messages on corners, hoping to hoping to earn someone's spare change that they scrounge around for in their car that will barely sustain them for the day, maybe even an hour. Now, but this poverty is is blatant, it's external, it's it's detectable, it's it's commonly encountered throughout the world. It's it's what people generate campaigns to try to end poverty over. And we're, and, and we're often confronted by those who are destitute. You know, their homes, sometimes their homes and belongings are sprawled out across patches of, uh, of grass that populate, you know, the, the, um, uh, the freeway entrances, you know, or, or they, they live sheltered underneath the awnings of overpasses. But I argue that this poverty, this poor state is not what Jesus, this isn't what Jesus is talking about. I mean, yes, I, I think this externalized exhibition of deprivation, of homelessness, of, of poverty, of being poor, on the outside, in the outer world that we, that we can see with our eyes, it, 
it illuminates, it, it challenges, it confronts, it mirrors something that I think afflicts us all on the inside. So what Jesus is talking about then is really a kind of poverty that lives at the heart of the self. It's something that stirs within this kind of impoverishment, stirs in the interiors of our soul. It's not an external materialistic lack. It's not that someone has, you know, doesn't, has very little possessions. But it's a lack that dwells inside and always has, and I'll clarify what that lack is. And so, and so here's the thing, is that this lack, this poverty is unearthed amidst the experience of despair, which I would say is this, this incredible, overwhelming existential loss that overrides and consumes one within. And when I say that one goes through despair, I mean that meaning has gone MIA. I don't know what I believe anymore. I don't know the, the, the very things I cherished have lost their value, their radiance, their luster, their meaning. Everything's called into question and heavily doubted. One's overwhelmed with a sense of isolation and meaninglessness, even if they're surrounded by unending resource and support. For instance, I, I have a great group of friends, and I have a good group of friends that you know began in my high school days, but then several years, you know, five, six years later, I would I would I would be so excited to spend time with friend these friends and then and then we'd watch uh we'd watch movies or or we'd watch videos on YouTube of guys like um doing ridiculous stuff that gets them injured and you know basically hits their uh you know they they um you know uh, land on their testicles and you know and and bellow over and or uh fall over in agony and, you know, and like, and we would laugh at that. And I remember just, I would leave those times together just feeling, feeling dissatisfied. Even though I was around people. And that's what I mean. It's that you have, you may have everything, these incredible resources, pretty good life in a way and support, but, but something inside just feels off, lacks, feels meaningless. And at the core, then, one who encounters this poverty, I believe, feels viscerally that nothing matters. And they suffer a pummeling disorientation that takes over the entire self. It's a kind of uh, a core loss, a guttural loss, that siphons all meaning away from that we considered to once be of insurmountable significance. It once feels so satisfied and content. And all these objects of glorified importance, they become bland and they become lifeless and life itself actually carries that same experience. It becomes lifeless. Now, hearing all that, who wants to sign up for that uh, that self-help journey, right? <laughs> and so, I mean, come on, let's start a seminar on that. Let's talk about, let's, 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 Let's gather the masses around that. Everyone's going everyone's gonna to sign up. But here's the thing. My questions then that I ask is, why does this happen then? Why if everyone, if, if it seems like they have everything, why does this happen? Why does one feel this, this brutal existential despair in the gut? 
You know, why does this lack surface viscerally? Why, it causes us to lose meaning and question everything. Why, why, when life has been so put together and seemingly satisfying and safe and comfortable and lavish and rich with so much experience, like why is it immediately robbed of its magic and its spell? Why does one begin to, to awaken to the reality that they aren't who they thought they were? That something inside says, this isn't me. This is not who I am. But could it be, though, that this lack or this internal poverty that causes insufferable questioning of ourselves and our life, it's not really an alien force? It doesn't just suddenly appear out of nowhere. What if it's been there all along? What if it runs so deep in our personal history and our origins? What, what if it's been traveling with us for all these years? That it's been the driving force behind everything in our lives sometimes unknowingly, unconsciously. That it's the fuel that's propelled us to construct life in the way that we have and attempts to quiet the fear of the unknown so we can feel settled, we can feel secure, we don't have to deal with uncertainty. And, and also settle the dissatisfaction that often churns within ourselves. What if this lack this lack is, is that which shows up in disappointment, dissatisfaction, and this kind of this missing sense. And what if that lack is actually calling us to not run away from it, avoid it, or seek out you know, answers out in the outer world to, to, to quiet it, to end it, but actually to seek this very presence in ourselves that's stirring inside. Because what if we, when we do that, we discover what we're really in search of? that we believed that the, the outer world would deliver. And then I asked myself too, then what is this lack? And so I want to explain what that lack is, but bear with me here as I, as I unravel this. So I want to go in reverse all the way to an origin story that illuminates this inner conflict and this condition I believe, lives inherently at the core of all humanity. And it's the, it's the Genesis story, right? The, the book of Genesis. It's the story of Adam and Eve. And we've heard that so many times. I mean, if, you know, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with that. And there's so many ways that it's looked at and talked about, but there's this one way that I just, I, I can't part ways with. I can't see it any differently. It's stuck in the way I see it. And so the Genesis story of Adam and Eve, it's here we encounter two humans that are invited by God or the divine to enjoy the abundance of life around them. They're given just these incredible uh, vegetation, this, this array of vegetation around them. But then they're faced, though. They're given this one prohibition that they can't eat the fruit off this certain tree. The divine says no. So they encounter this law, which is interesting. And guess what? They forget all about everything else around them that they can enjoy. And instead, they're transfixed under this object. This fruit transforms into something extraordinary. And this prohibition elicits then an intensifying hunger and this hypnotic-like curiosity to know, why has this item been so outlawed? And they're magnetized by this forbidden object and as they're in, their, in its magnification, 
right? It becomes imbued with radiant beauty. And they find themselves convinced that, that this is going to solve this gap within. And you can hear in the story, there's this, it's the serpent. And the serpent, I believe, is representative of this inner voice, this ego in a way, that says that, that, says that nothing bad is going to happen to you. You're not going to die. In fact, you'll be like God. And, when, and what we talk about when we talk about being like God, it means that they'll lack no more. And it means when they, when it says that uh, it doesn't say that they'll lack. It says that they'll be like God. But what I mean is that they'll lack no more. It's a, and and some of this, by the way, is from from a, um, a philosopher and theologian I really like. His name is Peter Rollins, and he says that they'll become like God, meaning they'll they'll no longer lack. The one who lacks the lack is God, and so they believe that they'll lack no more and they'll have complete fulfillment and security. Now. As they're staring face to face at this fruit, <laughs> just, it just, I mean, their their periphery just shrinks to to just them and this fruit, and, and so as they're face to face with it, they eventually become they reach their threshold of holding back, and they give in to the consuming desire, and they eat the fruit they believed was the cure, and guess what? It solves everything. Not really. Actually, it becomes a mess. It delivers nothing close to what they even imagined. Instead, what happens is it says their eyes are open. It's this uh-oh moment. And they see. They become conscious. They become aware. But instead, though, they feel a sense of shame. They hide. They retreat. And fear overtakes them. And it subsequently leads to hiding. Relational withdrawal, I like to call it. And then what comes from that is the birth of defense mechanisms that barricade them from um, uh, further from their honest and true self, from actually discovering what it was that was going on in them, what it is that they were seeking. They hold back. You know, it, show, it says in the story that God then uh, asks, where are they, and asks if they ate of the fruit, and asks why, and they uh, continue to avoid that and avoid that. Right? And so the story then continues, right? describing events of disconnection. Relational upheaval, right? There's this conflict then in the interpersonal realm and there's this continual imprisonment to the impulse now to chase after the object that's now imbued with illusory promise that it will end the dissatisfaction, that it'll cover over anxieties and vulnerabilities and that it'll provide wholeness and completeness. What it unfolds too then from the story um or these various stories throughout the, the 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 books of Genesis and Exodus and whatnot, as you see in these stories, these uh, what what's created out of this uh, this lack within and this avoidance of of actually the lack and whatnot um, is envy and violence and destruction, objectification, control, subjugation of other humans, and a layered persona that masks the true self hidden underneath. This is all birthed out of that, right? And this is when, when people, I, I don't like that word sin, but when we talk about original sin, then we're talking about this, that when someone avoids this inner whole, this lack, right? Then we do things in these behaviors to try to cure this, this, this chasm within. That's what we're talking about in that sense. Um, but I don't like using that language. So, so then we have these, so we have these three elements, that are in interaction with each other in the story. We have the lack, we have the law, 
we have the magical object. Now this lack, as I like to say, is that there's, it's this feeling that something's missing. There's a gap or hole at the center of ourselves. It's this void that we can feel right, on a visceral level. It primes us to look for something in the external realms as an antidote to this, to this inner chasm. We're in search of a plug that will bring us satisfaction and certainty. That will eliminate discontentment. That will settle our fears of the unknown. Now, in the story then, we, we see this lack. Uh, what's interesting is we, see, we end up seeing this lack exposed and activated. Subsequent to being told no. Right? So the no doesn't cause it. It doesn't give birth to it, but it, it what it does though is it it exposes it exposes this this inner gap, this this lack, this churning. And so when when the pro when this prohibition enters in the scene, it stirs up this hunger then to possess this fruit. Right? Adam and Eve are convinced that this object, this thing is gonna make them whole and complete. So the restriction of the object arouses the desire to have it, but it also does something else. It unearths something underneath the desire itself that we feel incomplete, that we feel like something's missing. So therefore, whatever object that becomes outlawed and and illicit, it then kind of has this power to it transforms it into a panacea this cure-all for this internal void so when adam and eve encounter this uh this inhibition this prevention they want it all the more the abundance around them disappears right in their conquest to possess the forbidden which says that the law then is ineffective in preventing consumption and instead, it actually intensifies their desire to have the sacred object. And when you think about it, there's so much that we will outlaw and prevent. But it, it actually, the question is, does that actually help? When we outlaw drugs, when we do this, right, does that, does that actually help? No, it actually entices us to want it more. We then, I mean, think about all the clandestine uh, businesses going on because we outlaw things. Right? And so these things stay in the shadows and then eventually they come up, but they, they're, they're running behind the scenes. And so actually what the story reveals is that the law, it's, it's actually, it's impotent. It exposes this, this, this inner lack within. This inner lack that then uh, uh, desires to have that which is out of reach. And so that which is out of reach, right, the object, the magical object, becomes magnified. This holy grail that will remedy this cavernous hole. But the reality is it only becomes deified or the savior of our inner discontentment as a result of this interaction of feeling this, 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 this inner void and this prohibition. So the more we're, act, more we're actually, you know, restricted from it, or we feel like, you know, we're internally prohibited, the greater the object's glorification. We have to have it, you know, and the greater the, our craving becomes to consume it. 
And you could see that. Even, you know, even those that say, um, for instance, uh, can't afford certain things, they may turn to stealing or robbing or killing to obtain that object, right? And so on and so forth. So, um, um, and those that have everything still feel a sense of restriction from, from other things that they believe will bring satisfaction, right? And so constantly where we feel this prohibition and it happens on an external uh, level dimension and an inner one. That something in us feels like we can't have it, which then entices us to have it. If that makes sense. So there's something about this magical object, right, that, that's out of reach. It engenders a powerful desire to grasp it, believing that this would bring lasting fulfillment. And so these objects, therefore, we become so attached to them we devote most of our energies and our uh, to um and and our resources to finding and clutching and the enjoyment of life that we're invited to experience it's siphoned by desperate and consuming attempts then to obtain this remedial source of contentment now when i'm talking about objects i'm not just talking about just uh, materialistic items. That's a part of it. But I mean anything becomes this object, so to speak. Lovers, leaders, right? Pastors, priests, uh, politicians, substances, food, clothing, appearance, uh, diets, exercising, titles, money, jobs, homes, God, and so on, all become objectified. And the attachment sources of which we sacrifice our entire selves to. And we sacrifice our entire selves because we're convinced that this is where the wellspring is. This is the source of complete nourishment and safety. But here's the thing. Unfortunately, when we, we think we've obtained it, as we can see in the story of Adam and Eve, that through whatever means it takes, through whatever mass destruction, through whatever uh, bridges we burn, just to have that, the fantasies ruptured as dissatisfaction and disappointment and emptiness you know, just burst through and permeate the illusion that, that we would feel content afterwards and secure, supplied from the miraculous object. But here's the thing that also entrenches this impulse, us to this impulse, is that as a result of these painful outcomes, we then, as we can see in the story, we, we turn harshly on ourselves. You know, we suffer great shame and judgment, and we believe that there's something wrong with us. And we, we may viciously blame ourselves, or in order to eradicate this, this shame and judgment, we'll, we'll blame others, we'll attack others as the cause of this disappointment. But our, our default then is to avoid exploring the experience within ourselves. Why did this happen? Why did this not bring contentment? Why do I not feel satisfied? But instead, this avoidance, it, it, consequently, it, it secures a dependency on the attachment object. And it shadows a widening understanding of what, what we're, we may actually be seeking. That's what I mean, is that we may seek outward and then experience disappointment, and then that disappointment teaches us, oh, it sharpens our understanding. It, 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 it brightens our attunement in a way of saying, oh, I don't want this. I think I'm starting to learn what it is that I'm desiring. 
right? But instead, when we're, it falls into the, the clutches, the vicious clutches of shame and judgment, it, it, what it does is we, um, it, it, it continues to darken the shadows of understanding. We don't, we don't get it. But instead, we're continually imprisoned to this impulse. Okay, well, then I need the next thing and the best thing and the greatest thing. And... But here's the thing that I think that actually this doesn't, it's not created from ourselves, this, this vitriolic response this of self-infliction and criticism. It doesn't start within. It's actually learned from our external world. And really, the, our, it's, it's, it forms in our very impressionable times as children from our parents, from our caregivers. That somehow we've received messages that something's wrong with me. Those are the voices that, are, uh, that come from outside of us that are communicating these messages. Rather than the voices that are actually helping us understand what we're seeking, what we're in search of. Right? Then when our parents say no, or we, we cross the boundary lines of the law and society, that instead of just being reprimanded and shamed and stuff, that we're guided into understanding like our own selves <coughs> and what, what we're reaching for. So as a result, though, of all this, we remain hidden from ourselves and we live life in the shadows and we're tethered constantly tethered to the external world to feel at peace within. And this avoidance of our lack then remains this indefinite and this immutable force. And it imprisons us into this desperate searching and this continual disappointment and this hopelessness. Right? So, now, this, this ancient story of Adam and Eve, right, it obviously illuminates this dimension, this trio of this lack and this law and the magical object, that it pervades humanity and that it, it seems to be the cause of so much universal suffering and disorder, but it doesn't actually give us complete clarity on what the hell this lack is. Now, when I mentioned earlier that, that there's this inner stirring in us that signals that something feels off within, right? And so we judge this to mean that there's something off about ourselves, something wrong with ourselves, something flawed. But I argue, actually, that this experience is not that at all. It's actually a profound message that invites us to explore, to deepen our understanding, to deepen a connection to ourselves. But when we avoid this, we'll continually seek outward. We hope to find something that's going to fill the cracks. We believe that there's some object out there that it's going to occupy this inner vacancy. But instead, this hunger returns over and over again. And, and, and when we're imprisoned to this impulse to keep seeking to fill this lack, right? It, 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 we intensify our search. We, we cross boundary lines. We, we have to up our game in a way um, that it will deliver uh, satisfaction. When I talk about, like, um, in my opinion, when it comes to like ad addictive-like behaviors, they're not seeking pleasure. They're seeking satisfaction. It's the pleasure, the intensity of pleasure, that then brings uh, this wash of satisfaction over the body. And so that's what we're in search of, is something that brings <coughs> this, this uh, eternal, long-lasting peace within. But, but despite all these efforts, it, it doesn't deliver on its promise. And so our pension is to find this all-powerful source of nourishment that will stave off the hunger. 
But I would say, but I'm going to argue that this hunger is actually vital and it's integral. It's an integral part of our humanity. It's there for a reason. It's meant to be embraced and welcomed, not squashed or stuffed or circumvented. But something happens within us that causes us to, to develop this disposition to avoid, you know, and, and become cursed by this insatiable quest for some long-lasting wholeness and security. And the external world becomes the source of attachment then to cure something that consumes our inner world. And here's the thing. Here's what I believe this lack is then. This lack that we avoid. This lack that we're constantly are trying to you know, fill. Is, is really these consuming forces um, of loneliness and isolation and disconnect. And I'll tell you where that comes from. Now, so we develop this fear then of encountering these painful states. And out of that fear, we then are compelled, as I've said, uh, to seek the world for some source that will alleviate this kind of suffering. And we search high and low for anything <coughs> that will restore harmony and union on the inside. And so uh, instead of you know enjoying life, uh, uh, of indulging in it, of um, intimately engaging with it, of uh, of of really experiencing pleasure connect in a connected way we instead will desperately consume it to to recalibrate this inner misalignment and so what happens then is and it starts early on is we remain fused with the outside world and we alter our genuine selves in search of sustenance we become something who we are not and that starts early we shift who we are to feel connected and secure within Where do these inner feelings come from? What creates this, right? So the lack, as I said, is this these inner feelings of loneliness, isolation, and, <coughs> and disconnection. But what creates this lack, you know, that, that ends up steering us in life? So let's, I want to start with a metaphor, because I'm going to go further back now. If this doesn't make sense, hopefully it will. So there's this metaphor that I, that I like, that I created. And, and so think of like once having lived inside a room that was filled with everything we needed. We had food, a place to rest, comfort, comfort entertainment, you know, just our complete source of connection <laughs> that brought about feelings of safety, security, peace, satisfaction. I mean, it was our complete nourishment, our one-stop shop for everything. But then what happens is there's this developing curiosity that there's something that, there's something there's there's a whole another world out there <laughs> there's there's other there's there's a life out there there's something that lies outside the room it naturally this this natural curiosity arises in us and it arises as we start to discover that we're we're not fused with this room entirely we're not just one identity we're we're a separate entity from the space and eventually this innate curiosity happens and, and this ability to go and explore beyond the known confines evolves and we follow this compelling draw and so we leave this womb of familiarity and comfort to see what's out there but when we go out there then we also realize oh man shit <laughs> i'm i'm away yeah that's what a child says right shit i'm away from from our safe room <coughs> and so what happens is we feel a pull to go back and we do afraid of losing this 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 fear comes over us this and we need we go back 
to it to to its to uh, this residence and its provisions, and we return and we get what we need for a while, and then and then this pull happens again to venture into the into the unknown, into the uncharted, and that 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 stirs up, and so we embark on this journey of separating, and so this rhythm right happens as we separate from the room. This rhythm of return and leaving intrinsically guides us to find ourselves. And, um, and, and so this rhythm happens as we differentiate from the room from which we are once in union. And, and what helps us then is that as we leave this room, as we in search for another residence, that this door is left open to come and go until we find our own place apart from, from the original one. So it's this natural surging in us to leave this formative space or we could say separate from the source or find our own place naturally. And, and here's the thing, if we stick with the metaphor, this is not, it's not an external residence. It's an inner one. That's actually uh, wired within us to depart from our origins and to find security within ourselves in order to engage and live in the world connectedly. And so the problem, though I argue, that that, uh, creates great suffering is that when the door to this room is not left open in our impressionable years for us to come and go as we find our own inner place in life, that's what causes the problems. That when this, this room, this foundational room offers probably sometimes very little nourishment or the door is closed and locked, you know, we reflexively find ourselves trying to get back in through various avenues or, or, you know, or extract whatever nutrients we can from other rooms or whatnot in the hopes of feeling secure, of feeling this place, of <laughs> feeling this, this, this satisfaction. And as we grow, then we, what happens is we try to recreate that room origins of the room never leave us we you know in the lack of of what we we didn't have and we then try to recreate or we seek other external rooms that mirror the original manipulating that space then that that resembles the past or possibly demanding it from other rooms to give us what we need to experience connection right so we're always there's a dependency on the on the external on external sustenance and that afflicts us at the core, and it drives so much of our actions and choices. And so underneath, though, these drives, these desperate, dependent drives, is this feeling that, that I'm cut off, right? Like I said, the door is locked or closed, or we have very little, that somehow I'm cut off, I'm isolated, I end up isolated and alone, alienated from the source. We feel this distance from, from, our, from our caregivers, from the source, from the room, the source that we needed. That we actually, actually, uh, it was vital for us to discover and live, eventually live and find our own selves and live out of our own inner place. So what happens is naturally, um, what occurs is there's this feeling of loss that comes out of the moving away from the original source. It's what compels us to keep going back as we feel like we lost something, right? To move back to this connection or this room. And, and yet, 
what causes the problems is when there's this restriction or this inability or this malnourishment in having access to the place, right, in order to develop soundly. And thus it creates this gap. And, in, and out of this gap then engenders this powerful movement to relentlessly find what feels lost. Now, if that doesn't make sense, then follow me even further into something more concrete that actually happens to us. Now, during the years of our life, or early years, around 18 months or so, um, something intrinsic happens to us. We were once, you know, we were once completely fused with our mothers, meaning we had no awareness of our own selves. We were just one unit, symbiotic and harmonious union. And what happens then around 18 months is we undergo this tearing of this union. As the birth of our own conscious self arises, we now start to see, oh, there's me and then there's mom. It's not just mom and me combined unit. It's something uh, naturally undergoes this ripping, right? It's when we become aware of ourselves. And so naturally this fissure occurs and it causes a rupture then between ourself and the other, now splits us apart. And prior to this though, there was no awareness. There was no separation from the one nourishing us. But now that we begin to discover our own individual selves at a young age, this incremental departure takes place from our caregivers. We start to move away, in other words. And we're intrinsically compelled to pull away and discover ourselves in the outer world. We now kind of we now realize we have our own body and our own skin and our own heartbeat and our own, you know, our own energy and our own, you know, and and, and our own desire and, and hunger to go explore. We can go away. We're not we're not uh, bound to our moms anymore. But as we, here's the thing is, um, we go out in the world, there's also this reflexive need to return to our parents for support. And that's what I mean, that this return comes out of this loss. This is not, it's not a good or bad thing, it's just what happens is this loss is, we were, we were once in, in full, complete connection to something. We had, you know, there was, but, but this loss occurs when we individuate. It's necessary, it's needed, it's a loss that one feels at the core of ourselves. And it's created out of this experience of separation. And so it's, it's why, if you notice with children, there's this rhythm, that there's this continual turning of parents for support, for nurturance, for safety, for trust, but then, and encouragement, but then there's this penchant to go out and keep exploring, right, to engage in life. But if you notice that when a child, like, ends up, you know, experiencing disappointment or hurt or pain, what do they do? They run back to their parents. They need that. They need to be held. They need that care. They need to be seen. They need that kind of love. And when that connection is made, guess what happens? They go out into the world again. They go and explore. They go and make it, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. And so in the midst of differentiating then, we look to them to help us understand what the hell is going on in ourselves. And, to, and, and what the hell is going on in ourselves as we navigate life? Like, what is this feeling? What is this? How, how come I feel sad? How come I feel upset? How come when I fell off my bike or when I try to ride my bike, I can't do it? Or, you know, anything like that. Our, our parents are there. They have this vital, 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 I emphasize, pos, uh, position as the source of our, our sources of our consciousness. They help us understand ourselves. They're illuminating. They're responding to and caring for our own internal worlds until we can. 
And so our parents and our support systems around us, they create an environment and soil that allow us to grow into ourselves, fully conscious, connected, unique, separate. And so we first require this from our caregivers, the safety and security, nourishment, guidance, and encouragement to go out and explore the world. We need that from our parents as we navigate this inner tension of separating from them. And so it's integral that, that one then experiences a grounded and continual connection with their sources in order to discover their own distinct person. That's what I mean by the door being open is that we can come and go, we can come back and get nourishment and, and tell our parents what's going on and, you know, and, and, and then, and then uh, and help us understand and connect to ourselves and then we go back out there in the world. And, and so our parents assist us in knowing our own selves. So we need them to help us navigate the loss in order to find an inner strength and connectivity to then go and, go and be connected beings and, 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 and connect on the interpersonal world and, and give of ourselves and enjoy that and bring our whole selves full and forward and, and, and in the presence of the other and enjoy that. And to really be able to enjoy ourselves. And that's what I mean by to, to, to live genuinely and passionately in the world. Now, the loss then at some point can then become this lack. Now, this lack, as I said, are these feelings of loneliness, isolation, disconnection. Remember that if, if what creates this beautiful growth and development and strengthening us is that we feel connected, we feel we have, our parents are accessible, they're there, they help us understand ourselves, they nurture us, right? If, if this is missing in any variety of ways, it creates a loneliness and isolation and disconnect that in, then inhabits us. And it's created from these missing experiences in our formative years of needing love and care. And so in the beginning, obviously, we're dependent on our sources for security and certainty and satisfying our needs. But here's the thing, when tragedies, traumas, relational toxicities, like manipulating whatever, wounding, shaming, judgment, so on and so forth, happen, they're just, just a variety of ways of just saying wounding, injury. Um, when that happens, it it ends up causing disconnect, right? We're pushed away from our caregivers. They intentionally do it or, or sometimes unintentionally, and it creates a derailment in the intrinsic experience of finding ourselves away from our parents. So when we start to separate, we need them, right? We need them to, to run to, to understand life and understand ourselves. But when that's lacking, when we feel this disconnect, this detachment, this distance, and what happens, it throws everything off course. And sometimes we become the targets of and absorb the messages of our caregiver's own lack, right? Their own unprocessed pains and insecurities and uh, discontentments and uh, living vicariously through us, unfulfilled desires, disappointments, that those become projected onto us in various ways. Instead of <coughs> the parent then looking at themselves and saying, why did I react this way? What does this tell me about myself? Instead, they, they um, unconsciously project and don't even look or even repair what's been put under the child and the hurt caused. Instead, it stays within, lives there, right? And carrying this infliction. And so, Subsequently, as a result of going through this, we suffer inner constriction and confinement. We lose ourselves. We live in survival modes. And we always then, we're always then aiming to please 
the unsatisfied and elusive desires of our parents to feel safe and secure. So instead of, of them being solid in themselves, right, in order to help us, we then, uh, it, it throws the whole system of connection off. And then what happens is we end up, uh, what, what changes, we end up uh, continually looking to our parents, like trying trying to please them so we can be okay inside. Because dad's always dissatisfied, mom's always upset and discontent and, and putting their shame and judgment on us. Now now I'm, I'm uh, afflicted with having to like satisfy them so I can feel connected to them, Does that, if that makes sense. So what happens then is we grow up unseen and rejected in various ways. Suffering uh, and absence or, or even a, or maybe a conditional love. That we're loved only when we do this and only when we do the right thing and only when we, we do this that satisfies our parents. That's what I mean by conditional. Sometimes it's just non-existent. We're not loved at all. We experience horrific things. And when I say conditional love, it can happen in various ways, even subtle. You can grow up in a great family but still have these, these messages these con- of conditional loving. So our own true selves are then pushed into the shadows showing up in secret in other ways as we grow up, then this is what happens where we live in secret, going out having affairs, looking at porn and not telling people and, and feeling ashamed about it and holding it in secret or using drugs, or, you know, whatever variety or, or um, holding back parts of ourselves. We, we've learned to push that down, but yet they show up and then we seek them out in clandestine ways. But in what we do in secret, in, then what we do in the light, in the presence of people is we wear various masks in order to extract care and connection from those we love. And what this, what this signals then is that we remain psychologically and emotionally fused. We're dependent, in other words, on the other. And that as we develop, as we grow, that permeates and steers our life. And so out of, out of this, and so this is what hopefully is, you know, you'll, can understand, it's important to understand is that out of this external disconnection and distance, we feel a deep sense of loneliness and isolation. We feel disconnected on the inside. What we learn and is modeled on the outside, uh, in front of us, towards us, directed or indirectly done to us, we then carry those experiences on the inside. Right? It's inevitable. And so we end up carrying the sense of loneliness and isolation ourselves that that rule and reign our lives, they infect our actions and compel us to depend on the outside world to cure this ache inside, this this feeling of disconnect. So this derailment and impoverished support pollutes any ability, right, to navigate this formative time of separating. We can't separate. We, we're, we're, we, we have almost no ability <coughs> to, to fully, healthily, uh, separate from our parents. We remain dependent on them in whatever ways. Even if we rebel, even if we, you know, it's still to try to prove to them that I'm not you, and, but it's still, it's still, uh, uh, this dependency runs the show. We're still in need of their approval for them to see us, right? For them to, to, uh, to nourish us. And so, so, but what happens with these toxicities is it derails, and this impoverished support derails, and affects an ability to navigate this, this differentiation, right? And then what happens is we depend on the outer world, and then this insatiable need, right, to replenish the missing nutrients come, is, is 
relied upon through various external resources. But they always fail to fulfill. So this loss, right, that's natural separation. It's instrumental in moving away from the, from the identity of our parents and finding security within ourselves. That is first needed. We need security in the outer realms in order to find that within and for that to grow within us in order to, to, to travel in life and, and, and partake in life. It now becomes this lack that haunts us. And we seek to end it by finding some attachment source, some surrogate attachment source to bring about inner peace. And we're left stranded at a young age, and because of this, and we're, we're abandoned in various ways by our sources, we're plagued with this feeling, this internal feeling, the feeling lost and disconnected and disoriented and demonizing ourselves, right? We, we, we ingest the shaming, judgmental messages from our parents and those around us, and we end up demonizing ourselves, and we're unconsciously driven and meaning we don't know why we do what we do. We're, we're harmfully impulsive. We hurt ourselves. We inflict pain ourselves, or we do that with, uh, to others. And we're terrified of the unknown. That The unknown just scares the shit out of us. And we also masquerade a counterfeit self, and we're often dissatisfied. And so, like I said, as I will continue to emphasize, this lack is this inner disconnect. And it's created from this natural loss as the self emerges right out of this fusion, this fused union with the caregiver that's not actually lovingly guided and cultivated. And so this abandonment experienced through external relationships becomes this internalized, this abandonment that's internalized and it reigns inside of ourselves. And out of this place, I believe, is then where the, uh, of internal disconnect is where the greatest atrocities come from. On, on, a, on a small and global scale. Wars, destruction, compulsive relationships, everything comes from this place of inner disconnection. And so I see the Genesis story as reflecting something innate in our humanity, that we felt disconnected at the center of ourself and our behaviors for so long. And, and more often than not, these behaviors then mirror this innate desire to feel connected and in union once again. That's that's what, you know, where people judge people and their behaviors. We don't, we judge because there's this judgment that lives in us towards our own selves that we don't understand that if we realize that at the heart of ourselves is this feeling of disconnection and we long and yearn to feel connected, to, ha- to feel that connection we once wanted and, and needed when we were young in order to, to continue living connectedly in the world, secure in ourselves, knowing what we want, knowing how to connect uh, um, securely, confidently, assuredly, right? That, um, uh, that, that this judgment towards ourselves and our own behaviors, it, it's projected onto our judgment of others. And we don't realize that everyone, most people, are really still connected to their pain of loneliness and dis, uh, um disconnection, isolation, and they act out of that. Some aren't. Some are far removed from that, and they just want to hurt humanity. But there's some that hurt out of this impulsive desire to feel at peace within themselves. So for me, the tale of Adam and Eve, it it begins to make more sense when exploring the, the relational psychological realms that live inside of us. And I don't care whether it's completely literal or not it's it's an archetype 
nonetheless. It's a profound description of our own personal stories, and it's the the kind of narrative and personal story that I think Jesus then seeks, and Jesus not seeks but invites us to change. And that's what he's illuminating in this in this whole Beatitude series. So when he steps in the scene, he starts speaking of this different path. It's unmarked. It's passed over. It's counter and anomalous to the ways we function in the world. It's a path we can easily miss. It's a path that is stirring inside of us. He introduces an entirely different way of living and shares with us the, the, um, the journey of getting there. And the starting point then comes with an embrace of this inner poverty, this lack, this feeling of disconnection. The solution then begins at the root of the problem, I see. It's, it's the real deep-seated reason why division, hatred, racism, wars, addiction, violence, abuse, you know, powerful political, religious, materialistic structures exist. It all stems from this, this experience, the feeling like something's missing, which is really this consuming sense of loneliness. I feel isolated, apart, disconnected, and out of these feelings then generate a desire to accumulate objects incessantly and religiously. And as a result of that, like consequently, well then this is where we then envy what others have. We may feel jealous. We, you know, we, we, um, we may even go to great length to destroy them in whatever way, even, even through, in death, because we believe that they live this satisfying life that we want to feel on the inside. And it's a kind of life that, that somehow we feel we're restricted from, from having, from experiencing. That's what I mean. We think that the possessions people have and their lifestyles, is that's what we need to feel satisfied because it's portrayed that way. You know, social media is, is, is one that can definitely draw out that envy and that lack. It has, it has for me. And so out of these feelings, and right, generate this desire to accumulate. And we give profound meaning to objects, including people we believe will fill the void in our lives, convinced they have the magical cure to do so. You know, lovers and leaders, they become these glorified saviors. We, we're certain we're going to end, end our suffering, our affliction, this disconnect. And we turn benign impotent objects into something we believe will save us. And yes, even humans. That's what I mean. Not just not just some material, but humans themselves. I I I, I remember I have to make a note reminding myself of this example that like even dating, when I when I started to date, really like date in the last several years, like this hunger came from me like and I this I mean this intoxicating fantasy would overcome like oh my god I'm gonna go on a date with this person and she did this and she said this and that means like she's really into me and maybe maybe we're a match and you know like just this this like very young uh excited hopeful fantastical energy just burst out of me and I it, it just you know it, it consumed everything and when I and then like and then women would experience this like if I interacted with them through dating websites and 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 my ex girlfriend experienced this where my recent one where, you know she would I would I would, this neediness would come out this desperation looking for reassurance and there was because there was such a dependency, on her or any woman, to 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 cure this this loneliness inside myself this loneliness that was created when I was young by my family my parents my mom my dad. 
And what's interesting is as I encountered that, uh, and, and women would, women would naturally pull away from me, you know, when they'd feel this intensity, you know, I'm like, how come you're not talking to me? How come we're not like, like even a few conversations in to someone with someone, this was like a couple years ago with some woman I was talking with online and I'm like, why isn't she responding to me? And then this like intensity came out of me and, um, and what, what happened from that was that like she pulled away, like she went MIA, she didn't respond back and that's what would happen. And so as I've gone through these experiences of dissatisfaction, disappointment, hurt, I've learned from that. Even this last relationship, I've learned like, this isn't what I want. But out of fear, I, 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 out of fear of losing that, out of fear of facing the pain of that loneliness that lived inside myself that would be uncovered through the loss of this relationship, like I held on, I avoided confrontation, I avoided uh, uh, showing my anger probably knowing instinctually that, that this would come to an end. Not necessarily that I would, <coughs> that this person would like pull away or leave me, but although there was a fear of that, but maybe I would come to the realization of the truth that this isn't working for me. I don't want to do relationship like this. So that's what I mean is that that this journey of uncovering this like helped me. My therapist like, you know, was never saying don't do this or don't do that. I, right? I mean, that kind of law doesn't help. He would say, yeah, go ahead. And then, and then I would learn from those experiences, you know, and I would feel shame, but then he would confront the shame and help me understand the truth. So anyway, all that to say is that, um, that yeah, in the beginning, we believe that these things will save us. And so rather than embrace this inner hole that, that, um, in which like disappointments and stuff stir, you know, at the center of ourselves, we avoid it. We avoid hurt and pain. And we're convinced that we've got to return back to something that we feel a sense of separation from. As if, you know, this gap signals this. There's some object out there is imagined to have the answer and the remedy. Right? But what we imbue with these properties that will bring us complete meaning and completeness turns out to be a, a fantasy and this and facing this reality occurs when this this I think this often suppressed force pierces through the desperate seeking and amassing and this what I mean by that is this force of despair of meaninglessness takes over that so much of what we accumulated externally to feel at one with ourselves this now shattered with this potent presence, this uprising of despair that engulfs us. And so disorientation of meaning occurs, as I've talked about in the beginning, and we become afflicted with this existential questioning of what does this mean? What do all these objects mean? I think I mentioned on the first first recording, and I'll share that again, is I would, you know, in the past I'd accumulate all this, um, uh, um, uh, I would I would download music like incessantly like I was spending time in my undergrad like not even paying attention to classes I was just constantly looking for new music to 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 hoard and stockpile and I wouldn't even listen to them it was just like it was just like it felt so exciting and tantalizing and and seductive and and satisfying to, like find it like seek and find it and then accumulate and then I needed more but I would never listen to it and eventually what would happen is every once in a while it would crack through the surface of that is like to just to, to stop doing that. Like to like, and when I say stop doing, I mean like that this was meaningless. This was impotent. This, this was lifeless. 
And, um, and so, um, and I would fight that and then I would settle back down and, you know, rationalize it and go back. And then, then we'd come back again into eventually I just thought, okay, I'll get rid of it all. And I did. And that was painful. It was painful. But then what I realized is, you know what? I'll download something. I'll listen to it. If I like it, I'll buy it. And I've, and I've lived that way ever since. And I've enjoyed that. And I'm not consumed. In fact, I enjoy, and it, it, it allows me to actually immerse myself in the music and enjoy it and find what I like and what hits me and moves me. And, um, and, and, uh, and so, so that's what changed. And so that's what I talk about is that, um, that this despair, this complete loss, that this meaninglessness takes, excuse me, takes over. And we awaken to this reality that I, I possess nothing and that these possessions are, in fact, nothing. I don't mean humans are nothing, but I mean the meaning we've imbued them with is nothing. We don't possess them. I remember, the, realize that about my ex-girlfriend. I can't hold on to her. I can't possess her. I kept doing that. So I could, I could feel okay on the inside. And so what we realize and wake up to is that the sense that they don't carry this remedy for this void. They, they can't restore this disconnect that we feel. We have to find that. We have to reconnect. We have to search that, seek that out in ourselves of what caused that and created this. And so, and so Jesus is not talking about purging material and financial properties. I think a lot of people get stuck in this and they'll interpret it this way and then they'll feel an overwhelming sense of guilt and exterminate their belongings to alleviate this torturous feeling, but it doesn't go away. It has nothing to do with the possessions themselves. It has to do with the inside, not the external. And so, like I said, that there's moments where these things seem to have had importance to us, they lose meaning. And questioning occurs and flames in us, and we wonder why we've placed so much stock in all the stuff. Money, religion, houses, cars, titles, who's God anymore, people, all of that. And so this, this, um, this excitement for, for what we held on to, what we were constantly in search of and, and hoarded and stockpiled and grasped tightly and fought, to, to hold on to, it declines. This luster and radiance that, that once aroused hope and satisfaction in us, it, it goes away, it vanishes. And it becomes tasteless and bland. And now we're engulfed by a state of despair and meaninglessness. And we may in that state encounter anxiety, which I did, and panic and frantically brainstorming, okay, how do I get out of this? How do I rid this of myself? How do I, you know, I think I mentioned before and probably in other episodes that I was in that cabin last year writing and I had this moment where this loneliness hit. I didn't realize it was loneliness at the time. But frantically, I started thinking, I panicked and I started to think, oh my God, okay, I, I, should, I should go out to like a bar in Tahoe and, and just grab a beer and just be around people. I need to interact. And I started, you can hear it, right? That, that's how my mind was. It was so frenetic and, and frantic and uh, desperate. And, and then I, I started to imagine that I imagine other people in my lives and my ex-girlfriend, all this stuff, like they're just having these rich lives and connecting and enjoying and they're not in pain and they're so, you know, and, and, and then I, something stopped. I stopped and this voice inside of me said, is that really what I want right now? And I immediately knew, like, no, I want to be here. This is where I want to be. I want to write. I want to be in this cabin. I want And I kid you not, all of the desperation and panic went away and I found myself. And that's what I'm talking about is that this arises in us. This loneliness churns in us and comes up and it comes up in despair and meaninglessness and it shows up in that way in order for us to face it, to see it. 
So we need this existential crisis, right? But we go through this catastrophic feeling over losing the sacred object, that we need something to restore us to a connected state. In a way, we, we again, I call this an existential crisis, that it, our very existence and meaning is called into question, and it's, and it's confronted with doubt and unknowing, like, what, I don't, I don't know anymore. This, this doesn't help me anymore. This is, this is lost. What we've used as filler doesn't work anymore. And it doesn't work in effectively hiding our loneliness, our unbelief, that we don't really believe certain things, even though we say we do, that this wandering or feeling lost, anxiety, uncertainty. And the misconception is, again, that we think it has to do with the objects themselves. That then what happens is we then are in search of substitutes or replacements in an attempt to solve the problem. I remember feeling that at the beginning of there, uh, one of the sort of early sessions with my current therapist, and you know, I remember saying, "Oh, maybe if I do more of this," and he confronted that. He said, "Is that really? Would, is that really going to help you, Ben? It hasn't helped so far." And I could just feel myself just collapse in despair, like, "Oh, it just hit me like this isn't going to work." And so, but we do this: we go to more seminars or do more self-help reading or amplify or church attendance or support group attendance or spend more time with friends and spend less time with friends, do charity work, minimize our possessions, go out more, do more, help, all this stuff, so on and so forth. Physically augment our body and, um, and, and you know, alter, you know, and alter it or whatnot, so on. So we can feel okay. But it doesn't matter if we convert to the next object or religion or whatnot. This still happens within and we'll continue until we answer it, until we listen to it, until we realize all this we've been doing is not working. It doesn't solve it. It doesn't have to do with the objects. It has to do with the meaning we've given them. And this loss, then, that we experience causes us to question the meaning that we've rendered to everything we've acquired, including our own identity. Right? It seeps through the cracks of this veneer that we've constructed, a veneer that covers over the truth that we aren't who we really are. That what we feel inside is something that we've 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 masqueraded in a way that we, and 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 convinced others that that's not what we feel. That we're plagued by this visceral presence of loss as we awaken the reality of what these objects truly are. They're impotent entities. They have no magical qualities. Right. And that we aren't who we are, that we've worn a mask. And so this powerful crisis creates fault lines. And we find ourselves encountering, again, this internal loneliness and isolation, starving, emaciated, abandoned, and lost. And this, I believe, is the poverty that Jesus is talking about. It's the entryway, it's the starting point to changing, to living in the world grounded in such a different way with a different experience of meaning but it has to do with this it starts though with this very difficult harrowing prerequisite that we embrace our inner poverty our despair accept meaninglessness our inner disconnect or lack that we've been hiding from this and from ourselves from what's missing and so that's what's so significant and, 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 and equally significant life-altering. It's not that we come to realize that these objects that we've attached to, that we've worshipped, that we've devoted ourselves to, that they, they don't mean what we thought they meant, that they've lost all of meaning, but also that we come to realize that, that we aren't 
who we are, that our own identity and self is not truly who we are, that we've worn a mask since we were young, altering ourselves uh, for the sake of being connected, to, to, get, to, to get satisfaction from our parents, that we could be satisfied. If they're satisfied, then I'm satisfied, right? Then they'll love me, they'll like me, they'll give me what I want. So we, we cure that. Instead of just being ourselves that are loved unconditionally and cared for, instead we, we grow up in a, in a system of conditional love and then we have to fabricate something disingenuous, something outside our own true selves. So we don't feel so alone and we don't feel so lost. And in this place of change we now face that we've lived in an artificial dimension, hiding, holding things inside, holding back truths, uh, emotions, anger, living desperate and anxious and disingenuous states to experience some semblance of belonging, safety, care, being seen and known. And so when this is no longer pushed away and denied, then, and, and instead we welcome it, we've now embarked on a new journey. All right, that's when he says the kingdom is yours. It's, it's now, it's at hand. This is what salvation is, right? This waking up to this reality, this hunger, I want something more beyond the way I've lived and consumed. There's this hunger for something deeper, richer, of lasting value, right? One that takes us in a different kind of fulfillment, right? This journey of, of fulfillment, embracing, of connecting to this whole range of life experiences. That we approach life now with openness, vulnerability, pleasure, boldness, desire to explore, peace, enjoyment, and it's life grounded in the present, right? Not fixated on the, haunted by the past or, or fixated in anxiety on the future, but present, delighting in uncertainty, fully engaging in both the satisfactions and dissatisfactions and the pains and pleasures existence brings. When we welcome it all, that's, that's life. That's true living. And this way of being all starts with loss. So, on that very long episode note, <laughs> to be continued on to the next phase of the journey, folks. And that's all I have to say for tonight, or today, or on this episode. All right, to be continued. Take care. <laughs>